Hey everyone, and welcome to the New Visionary Podcast, a podcast for artists who are ready to reach greater heights in their art careers. I'm your host, Victoria J. Fry, founder of Visionary Art Collective and New Visionary Magazine. Join me for inspiring conversations with some of the most inspirational visionaries in today's art world. Let's jump in. Hi, beautiful souls, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Stephanie Sachs, a visual artist based in Maui. Stephanie is also the creator of Artists Make Money, a self-paced online course helping artists to build their careers and create long-term relationships with collectors. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for joining us today. Aloha, Victoria. I am so excited to be here. Aloha. Oh my goodness. I should have opened with that. You are coming to us from beautiful Maui, which I have never visited, but it is like the top, top, top of my list in terms of places I want to go to. And it just looks like an absolute dream. Uh, I, I want to start before we even dive in. When did you move to Maui? Are you from Maui? Or I'm, when did I'm you not. I'm then? from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Brooklyn. I was raised in New Jersey. I spent all my time in New York City when I was growing up. I was not a suburban kid. I mean, I was grateful for my parents, but that wasn't who I was. And then I went to university art school in a university called Washington University in St. Louis. So I got out of the East Coast and realized that there was a whole world, which I had as a New Yorker, not realized, sorry, New Yorkers, sometimes we're a little myopic. And then a girlfriend um, was taking a semester off from college. She said, I am going to Maui for six months. And I graduated from college and I was, I just invited myself along and we moved here. We had no plans. We lived in a shed. We had a hose for running water we had no electricity and we had an outhouse. And <laughs> I, I immediately found a job with an artist and there was a little burgeoning art kind of scene happening here. And after the winter, I realized, wow, I could be happy living with an outhouse and no electricity to not have winter. And this place was absolutely beautiful and magical. And I just packed up all my stuff from New Jersey. I went back, said goodbye to my family, packed up, and it's been probably 35 years. There is a fantastic art scene with lots of artists, and I'm very involved in it. And I really feel like so many people here have taught me so many great things. And I love the New York art scene too. Don't get me wrong. I was just there. I met you there. Um, and I was there mm-hmm. for two weeks and I went to every museum I could go to and I did all the things I could, galleries, walking the streets. I love it, love it, love it. But um, this is this is a more relaxed environment and certainly warmer. And I did like winter. I was not. Winters are brutal. Winters are brutal. And yeah, I think it's the art scene in New York. I mean, there's a lot of reasons I love New York, but like you said, the art scene is pretty incredible. But I've also heard it's very cool in Hawaii. I don't know a ton though about like, so I know Hawaii is obviously made up of many islands, but would you say that Maui has like, is sort of where the art scene is happening or is it kind of spread out? Like, hopefully I don't sound super ignorant asking you this, no, but I really don't know much about question. it. And I would think that mm-hmm. people on Oahu would think that the art scene on Maui is 
a little bit more commercially oriented and they're a little bit more contemporary oriented. And there's definitely some things happening over there. But it turns out that before the fire in Lahaina, Lahaina in particular was one of the top five places revenue-wise per square foot to buy artwork in the world. It just was a very commercial type of art, but it still gave rise to people thinking about buying art while they're here. And so it gave rise to people coming on vacation and being interested in buying art. And that is something that I was able to tap into. And when I first started making my living, I definitely felt like I had to like go around the island and do watercolors of different scenes and try to figure out how to make a living. And what I realized over the years was that all different kinds of people come here and I meet all different kinds of people and that my tribe was going to find me if I was out in the world looking for my tribe. And I just had to be more patient to find the people who were going to resonate with my work. And perhaps people would think I've left a lot of money on the table by doing that, but I have made money. I make $100,000 a year in revenue. So um, I do find collectors and that combination of being able to paint what I want and finding my collectors and then creating relationships with them has really it took me a long time to do, and but it didn't have to be this long. I had to have believed earlier on that there was an audience for my work. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful point as well. Like you can create the kind of work that you feel aligned with and there will be collectors. Because I think, you know, it's easy to think as an artist that you, a certain kind of work that you create will sell. And then like, let me lean more into that because that's what people are interested in. And I think, you know, that's fine, but also it's okay for your work to change. It's okay for your work to shift. And I think just like trusting that there will continue to be like, I truly believe there's an audience for every kind. There's a market for every kind of genre style of art. Uh, But before we chat about all the things related to selling your work and making money as an artist. I want to just learn a little bit about your work and the kind of work you create and how it's sort of shifted and evolved over the years. Um, tell us, tell us about it. Well, I paint radical joy. I paint abstracted landscapes designed to intrigue and delight and surprise the viewer. And I really paint because I want to speak to something greater than myself. And I've painted many styles over the years. And I think it's important for artists to realize that they can change and that things flow. And I've certainly gotten to these points in my career where it wasn't exciting anymore in the studio, whether the work was selling or wasn't selling. At the beginning, there was this kernel of exploration. And then there was this formation. And then there was this repetition. And once the repetition happened for too long, I personally start to uh, like get really closed in and very anxious about wanting to break out of it. So I pretty much changed my style maybe every four or five years. And some of the artists here are always like, oh my God, Stephanie, you did it again. And I think that is the genuine excitement about 
having collectors that are excited about your change too. I love that so much because it can feel really scary to change your style. I went through a big change a few years ago. Um, I had previously created these abstract sort of encaustic paintings that referenced nature and organic forms and landscape. But then I went really deep into landscape and sort of shifted my color palette um, quite a lot. And just the subject matter, the content of the landscapes really shifted. And I, a lot of artists that I work with or that I know personally feel at some point that they want to change their work. And I think it is met with a lot of fear. You know, what's going to happen to my collector base? What about social media? And will people still recognize me and my work? And I think it's very closely tied to this idea that we can sort of like only have one thing and it has to sort of stay the same in order for it to be successful. So I love that you are here and you're like, hey, I'm making 100K a year. I change my style every few years and that and it's okay. Like it's safe to do this. So I'd love to just hear more about that and, you know, how you've gotten to this level of success. Well, I've been very fortunate, like I said, because it was a small burgeoning um, art society when I got here. And over the years, it's really built. And one of the ways I feel it really built was because um, there was access to events. And so when I was really young, well, God, when I was super young in my 20s, I drew portraits on a street corner in Lahaina, which now unfortunately doesn't exist, but um, it was a very busy area with restaurants and things like that. And another artist had taught me how to draw portraits in five minutes. And I'd never thought about being a portrait artist, but I had drawing skills and I was in my twenties and I just knew that I could do this for very short periods of time at night and then have my whole days to develop my style and develop my craft. And unbeknownst to me, I was also developing my craft at night, drawing the portraits, which was ended up being like the icing on the cake. So that's how I started. And then there were fairs, there were events. And one of those events was under the banyan tree in Lahaina. And I feel like those kind of events were what kept artists here and kept artists growing and kept artists having opportunities to meet collectors directly. And I felt like that was an emerging artist event. And uh, to me, emerging artist meant two years. So I always knew I was going to be there for a short time. And I was very fortunate at that moment that um, a hotel over here where I live um, called the Four Seasons, everybody's heard of the Four Seasons, they opened up an artist program and their idea was not really revenue driven at the beginning. And even now um, it was to create relationships between the people who come as guests to their hotel and the people of the Island in a genuine connection that wasn't just some, not to dismiss the employees, but that was beyond the employee guest experience. So the employees are fantastic at the Four Seasons. I just adore them. But the Four Seasons wanted something that was beyond that, that would create other types of relationships. And we were, we were, we had no idea what we were doing. 
and I sold $25 prints. And how we all evolved was we really evolved together. Someone would sell something for a thousand dollars and we'd all hear about it. And we'd be like, oh my God, Lori sold something for a thousand dollars. And then we'd all be like, what are we going to make for a thousand dollars? And then, then Charlie would sell something for $10,000 and we'd be like, oh, Charlie made something for $10,000. What can we make for $10,000? And it really grew like that. And even the sales skills, which I really feel like is the juice of what I teach people in my class, really came from the artists learning from each other how to be of service and how not to be pushy about sales and how to be comfortable in sales because we were not comfortable in sales when we first started. None of us understood what sales were and none of us were, if we're not introverts, we're basically like the fine line between introverts and extroverts. So we all really learn together on the job. And so that, so I do that once a week and at different times in my career, I've, once that hotel opened up, other hotels started to see, oh, this is a very interesting idea for our guests and, um, and our revenue. And so I had opportunities to be at other hotels as well. And at one point I was doing three events a week and it was a lot. I had a line of scarves that I had created and had uh, wholesales and found manufacturing. And I was doing that and the paintings. And after COVID, it just, I decided that I really wanted to concentrate just on painting bigger paintings and um, working on this new style and, and creating this course and giving back to my community because I love you guys. I want you guys to experience just how fun it is to have collectors and to make a living. That's amazing. It's so cool to hear about your journey and how it started and like how you got to where you are now. And I really appreciate what you said about getting comfortable with selling because I think for a lot of artists, understandably, when we think about sales or selling our work, there's like an anxiety (laughs) attached to that and like a discomfort attached to that. And also like a how and you know, what does that look like? There's so many questions around it. And I think some artists are like, hey, let me just work with a gallery. I don't want to have to sell my work. If I find a gallery, they will sell it for me. And I always say to every artist, you know, if you find the right gallery and you have a team of people who support you and are actively sharing your work with their collector base, that's a beautiful thing. But it is essential that you also know how to sell your work. And It's also very attractive to galleries when they see you selling your work. Um, And then also, you know, I've brought this up before, but there's sort of the, like, you know, I had this experience and I've seen other artists have this, this experience where I was represented by a gallery right after art school and they were selling my work and it was wonderful to be selling artwork at a gallery at, you know, 22, 23 years old. But when the gallery eventually closed their doors... I had no idea what to do. I was like, okay, wait, but now, now what do I do? How do I sell my work? And so it was a lot of learning. And, you know, now I also work with artists to help them increase sales and revenue streams and all that good stuff. But 
it's like, I think a big part of this is taking full responsibility for your art career. And I think that's like the core of what you're teaching. Yes, thank you, Victoria. <laughs> I think it's empowering. And I want artists to understand that. And I so thank you for now being on both sides and seeing what it's like yeah. to be a gallery owner. Because yeah. I think artists believe if I learn sales, then galleries aren't going to want me. But what I found was the exact opposite was true. When I went to Chelsea, like in 2010 or so, and I was like, I have this email list. And I have these collectors. The doors open for me. It was the exact opposite of what I think artists believe. And when you have your own collectors, when your gallery closes, you're not losing your collectors. You already yeah. have your collectors. And if Instagram changes their algorithm, you have your collectors. And even if you're never going to sell to collectors, you are selling yourself to a gallerist. You are selling yourself all the time. And yeah. it's not a bad word. And it's a learnable skill. And the reason why we don't want to do it is the same reason why everybody doesn't want to do it. And that's because we fear rejection. And it's just a basic human thing. People don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be rejected. It's just yeah. part of taking responsibility. And when you get to the flip side of it, you are empowered. Yes, yes, absolutely. Like That's the most important thing. And you know, I always say to artists, like, I want you to have the choice. I want you to maybe even do both. So many artists I know do both. They sell out of their studio. They also have a gallery. Some choose to just continue selling out of their studio without a gallery. Um, but to have options, like when you're empowered and you have the knowledge and you have the skills and you have that comfort with selling, then you have options. And I also really appreciate how you said you know, selling yourself, it's not a bad, there's, I think, definitely a misconception around what that means. But it's like, no, it, that it just, I think it means you're just comfortable talking about your work, presenting your work, sharing what you're creating with the world. That's really what it comes down to and forming those relationships. So that's a big question I have for you is what has helped you to build those relationships? I know you have a lot of like long-term uh, collectors, and you've really built your collector base over many, many years. So what has helped you to maintain those relationships? And what advice would you give to artists who are working on that? <laughs> Great question. Um, well, first off, I think it is important to know how to talk about your work and to, you know, we've all probably heard about the elevator pitch by now and to how to create one and how to practice it. But really, when I'm talking to potential collectors, I spend less and less and less time talking about myself and more and more and more time talking about them and talking about why they are in front of my work and what has drawn them to it and what are their needs. Is there a room in their house that they're looking for artwork for? Are they just a lover of collecting? What other artwork is in their collection? What are their needs, their wants, and desires? And so I spend a lot less time actually talking about myself and a lot more time actually talking about them. 
and learning who they are and what is their motivation. And so then you're setting up a relationship that is two-way. They are enjoying your art and then you know about them as well. So that's the first step towards creating a relationship. And then I do do a lot of follow-up. I do follow up like on the individual writing email letter level, saying like taking notes, knowing who the people are, getting back to them, asking them to show me pictures of their homes, maybe even Photoshopping artwork into their homes for them. I even put on little fake frames on it, you know, like really set the artwork in their locations. Not everybody, but if it's if it's helpful, I do that. And then after that, I have an, a newsletter and I am not like a big fan of like every week or anything like that. It, that wouldn't work in my life anyway, but I am a big fan of, I have new work. I have a new show. I have something new happening. I'm going to put the time into sending out a newsletter. And so my newsletter might not only might go out maybe seven, eight times a year, but I have like an 60%, 70% open rate. And that's because people know when they receive my newsletter that there's something interesting to them. Artists, people get so much crappy news in their emails every day. They are delighted, delighted to open up an email from you and see your artwork. It makes their day. I'm so glad you said that too, because I'm a huge fan of email marketing. I like talk about it at length and it's been such a powerful tool for, you know, for me as an entrepreneur with my business, but also for every artist that I work with, I see what a, what a huge difference it makes. That's Almost always one of the first things that an artist, you know, will say to me, they're like, but people get so many emails. Who's going to want to hear from me? But it's so true. Like, yeah, but what are those emails? A lot of them are like spam or junk or, or like, you know, whatever they might be. When you actually send something out that is really intentional and it's like a love letter, you know, you put love and care into it. I think Katerina Popova actually calls her or like has referred to her <laughs> newsletters as, as love letters before, which I thought was so sweet because it's true. It's like if you're doing it thoughtfully and with intention, people are going to respond to that. They're going to respond really positively to that. That is so great that Katerina says that. I say that about my class. At the end of the class, when I finished Aww. creating it, I was like, this is my love letter to artists because, you know, that's, that's what we have to give out every time we communicate with people. It has to be genuine. It has to be really interesting and intriguing. And the thing that I think is important is we cannot get bogged down in the details. I hear so many artists say, oh, I didn't send out that newsletter because it wasn't perfect yet. And that will just set you back and set you back and set you back. And here's a funny story. I proofread my emails. I even have Grammarly now. I send it out to one specific person before I send it out. I check it on my phone. I check it on her phone. We communicate about it. And inevitably, I send it out. And my fifth grade teacher comes back to me and says, you made this grammatical mistake. Can you fix it now? And I'm always like, no, I can't. (laughs) 
<laughs> You're like, no, sorry. <laughs> Wait, I love that your fifth grade teacher's on your email list. My fifth grade teacher's on my email list. Yes. But you know what? That also speaks to anyone can be a collector. You never know. Um, and it's funny too, because I feel like when it comes to sales, a lot of artists will say, you know, only only people I know like within my inner circle are buying my work. But I always try to say as well, like typically and not always, but a lot of the time that is how it starts. It's like concentric circles. And so a sale is a sale, you know, whether it is to um, your aunt and uncle, your best friend, you know, whoever. But how have you, like what's been, you know, I knew you do the events and I'm sure that has helped to connect you with so many people that you wouldn't normally meet. Is there anything else that has helped you to grow your collector base in addition to doing the events? I'm a little bit older than a lot of people who are probably listening to this. And now, you know, of course I'm on Instagram now, but I've been on Facebook for a long time and I definitely feel like my Facebook tribe is a little bit like more people that are in, I'm a, have a closer circle with. And I've definitely mm-hmm. did, done some things like giveaways and stuff like that on my Facebook feed. And that's helped me get more people on my email list. And those people already like me and know me. You know, mm-hmm. they say in sales, they have to like, like, you know, you trust you. I mean, it's mm-hmm. kind of easier for when I put out things on Facebook, like I'm having a giveaway than it would be maybe to a cold audience. But I do, I have been able to capture emails that way. And I'm sure you could capture emails on Instagram that way too, um, with complete strangers. Because if people like your work, even better if they're a complete stranger. You know, it's Christmas time right now. You could easily just post something that was like a very small work of art or a print or something like that and offer it free to people who sign up for your email newsletter within the next week and uh, grab people in that way. And those are people who really are already what I would consider warm. They know you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great strategy. And we have so many tools now. I always say, I think this is like the best time to be an artist because we have email marketing, we have social media, um, you know, Instagram and Facebook and coupled with, I think in-person events really are powerful. And we met at Superfine doing the panel discussion, which was wonderful. I remember you sharing the advice with the artists who attended about really trying to center the conversation more on the potential collector who's visiting your booth rather than, um, you know, the other way around. And I thought that was such smart advice. So what I'm thinking of artists who participate in Superfine or like the other art fair by Saatchi. I also work with some artists who live in very small towns in sort of rural areas. I know that you have events that you attend, you know, very regularly and have for a long time. What advice might you give to an artist who perhaps is kind of interested in maybe participating in more in-person events to sell their work or to network? And maybe they're not quite sure how to go about doing that. I think that even in small towns, like right now, there's definitely going to be holiday events, right? There's going to be holiday events. And even if you don't want to do it this year, I think it's great to go to the events 
and see what is selling, what booth spaces look intriguing to you, what booth spaces you see a lot of people around, what kind of price points you see are being sold at these events to give you an idea of what kind of work, creative work is happening, other types of work are happening to prepare you for next year if you want to go. And if you wanted to go this year, I think it's important to have several different price points. I don't do low-end prints. I have very limited edition prints, but that that helps build my business up so that I can charge more for my originals. So I'll have like a limited edition of 20 on canvas. And so that if someone's not going to buy a $10,000 painting, maybe they'll buy a $1,000 reproduction. So I try to have different price points um, for people. And as far as events go, I think things like Superfine and the other art fair are great because they're really what I'm talking about too. And that is having a direct relationship with collectors and meeting people who are excited about buying artwork and creating those kinds of relationships. And so I'm all in on those events. And I saw that the people who were doing the best at them did have, like one person I saw that I thought was doing so well had really solved the framing issue. Her frames were so good and they, the whole artwork looked so complete and she had different sizes and they were so beautiful. The paintings themselves were beautiful, but the presentation was beautiful. And a lot of times when people are buying two-dimensional work, they have a fear of it lying underneath their bed because they didn't get the frame for it. So if you're a two-dimensional artist, sometimes you need to start solving the framing issues for people before they even come to your booth. Um, I do that by having little sample things, frame, frame things. And then, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you can make reproductions because you're two-dimensional. Well, there's no reason why a sculptor can't make reproductions too. I have friends who make more money off of their bronzes than they do off of the original ceramics. And they do it in all different sizes, like small things and things that are like 10 foot tall. So um, there is ways of creating reproductions in many different mediums. And so don't think it's only about painters and canvas and the obvious things. There's so many different kinds of things that you can make very limited reproductions of. So that way you keep the price point high and you keep it desirable and collectible. Yes. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a really good point. And also when you mentioned pricing, because <laughs> this is so connected to sales, what advice would you give to an artist who is nervous to raise their prices? You're charging too little. <laughs> That's yeah. just it. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. just do the math. You are charging too little. If you are worried about raising yeah. your prices, then you are charging too little. And I understand why, because we think, oh, if it's not selling, it's the price point. But actually, it's never the price point. If people want yeah. your artwork, they want your artwork. And if people want your artwork, then they will find a way of purchasing it. Maybe they won't purchase their next iPhone as quickly 
But they, if they love your work, they will find a way of owning it. And if they can't own the original because it's too expensive, then have still not inexpensive, but very nice reproductions on the high-end side to collect. So you're not getting rid of that, but I make it so that my reproductions are one-tenth or one-twentieth of my original. So people, it's a very distinct thing. You know, you are either going to be in this price range or that price range. And in the reproduction range, you probably could buy a small original. But if you want something like 40 by 60, you are going to be spending like, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot about money. I think it's like almost like artists are scared to talk about it sometimes. And I want to bring it out in the open for people to get more comfortable with just get more comfortable yes. with. And for me, if I'm selling a painting for $12,000, I'm selling the reproduction for 2,500. Like a 40 by 60 is 2,500. Not, not, not framed, not anything like that. Rolled in a tube and I help them find a framer back home. Um, I'm not interested in not believing that my work is worthy of prices that will afford me a life. I think that's amazing advice. And I agree a hundred percent because so many artists, especially when they're starting out, especially if they haven't sold work before or they're new to selling, I find our pricing too low. And I think, you know, when you're starting out, there's a balance, like you want to feel comfortable. So, okay, if you're starting out at a slightly lower price point, you know, but you're planning to raise your prices, that's one thing. But I, I noticed this with art, like artists I've worked with in the past, and I've also experienced this myself as a painter, um, you know, as an artist as well, this fear of raising prices. And I think it's so linked to like a scarcity mindset of equating raising prices with losing sales when actually I think it can be the opposite. It's really all about your collector base and finding and attracting the right people who are willing to pay. So I think that's a really important distinction that you made. Sometimes when you charge too low, people think something's wrong with it. Yeah. Because you don't think it's worthy. Why would they think it's worthy? And so um, people are not attracted to work that doesn't have, you know, an artist behind it believing that it's worthy. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I have also just a slightly more practical question for you because I love the idea of really high-end reproductions. Where, how do you go about getting those made? Like what advice would you give to an artist who is looking to get really high uh, quality reproductions made of their work? Like let's say they're painters. Yeah. So I use, um, some people call them G-clays. I don't tend to use that word. I call them custom reproductions on canvas, custom canvas reproductions. And I have a, a photographer that's next to my studio, which is super great. I've had a relationship with him for all these years. He takes very high quality, high digital photographs of my art. So before my art leaves my studio, I go over to Jose and sometimes he'll, in the bigger pieces, maybe take two or three 
photographs and slice them together. He has, he's always buying the newest equipment. He always has like super high resolution, big files, and that will help you make bigger reproductions. A lot of galleries feel like when they're making reproductions, they have to be smaller than the original. I understand that that is gallery protocol. Personally, I found that most people who can't afford originals at a high price really want something over their couch or something over their bed. And they do want something about 40 by 60. And that is a great um, opportunity. So it's up to you. I just make 20 in the edition and that's how I limit my editions. But if people, one person wants it 40 by 60 and another person wants it 20 by 30, I'll do that in the 20 in the edition. And that's just my rules. I know that is not gallery rules. So I'm not like trying to like push my rules on you. I just wanted to create something that was limited and that not everybody would have, but that would serve my collectors. And so my photographer also has those high-end Epson machines. And so I go over there personally for every reproduction that I make. And I check it with him afterwards and he gets it coded by somebody else. And then I ship it out once I've approved it. Many, many people use services that are print to order, Bay Photo or something like that. It's just not my style. I'm a little bit more hands-on. I want to make sure it's color corrected. I want to make sure I'm happy with it before it goes out. I want to make sure there's no glitches. It's just how personally behave. I, I, it's, I think we all have to come up with those things ourselves, what we're comfortable with to make that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think having, um, having, having prints, having reproductions, but essentially having different price points is really, really important. And I think, you know, like when we think about sales, it's typically your bronze, your silver and your gold, having those tiers is really helpful uh, so that, like you said, if someone can't afford the $12,000 painting, they can afford the $2,500 reproduction. And those are great prices. Did you, has your, have your prices grown um, significantly over time? I mean, I imagine they have, but I would love to. Yeah. yeah. And you know, you were mm-hmm. talking about that before. And I'll just say, every time I raise my prices, and I probably raise it only like 5% each time I raise my prices and I raise it maybe every other year or something like that. Um, it is a stretch. It is uncomfortable at first to say the new prices, to be comfortable with them. And until you have a sale at the new prices, it's uncomfortable. And we, we all laugh at the four seasons together when one of us decides to raise our prices because that person is always just so uncomfortable at the beginning. I personally feel like if you are not uncomfortable in your life at at all, and you make yourself comfortable all the time, this is all myself. I'm not living. I need to be uncomfortable some of the time in order to grow. Putting together the class, going on these podcasts, this is all very uncomfortable at the beginning. And every time I'm like, I did it, I did it, I did it. I grew a little bit more. I empowered myself a little bit more. And even in my studio, the middle part of the painting is so freaking uncomfortable. 
you start, you have your vision, it doesn't work out. It never does. If it does, it's not a good painting in my, in my world. Right. And so you get to these teenage years of the painting or these uncomfortable times in life where you're scared to ask for a price or you're uncomfortable talking to certain people about your artwork. And it's really just a matter of gently pushing yourself through those times in order to either achieve or fail and continue to move forward. Because for me, that's what makes life worth living. That's where the juice comes in. So I don't mind as much being uncomfortable anymore. But yes, it is uncomfortable to raise your Yeah, and absolutely. And I, I love your point about, you know, like that is where the growth happens. The growth happens only through discomfort, really. Um, and a, quest, a question that I have for you that I think is just connected to sort of everything we're talking about, you know, with money and pricing and selling, having taught, well, first of all, having many, many years of experience under your belt of selling your work and building relationships with collectors and also now teaching um, your course, Artists Make Money, what, if you had to identify like the biggest block that you've noticed with artists and selling their work, what would you say that is? I think that art school teaches artists to wait around for someone else to do the work that they want they did they don't want to do. I think that art school when I came out of art school, I look back at what my plan was. What was that? <laughs> and you know, I listened to you and Kat and And I am so sad that art school has not changed their business plan. I'm like, you guys are spending so much more money than we did to go to art school. And I thought we spent a lot of money. And to not give you any other business plan other than to go into your studio and paint and wait for somebody else to find you is not a business plan. And it pains me that people are coming out of art school with the same business plan that I came out of art school with. And it took me so many years to realize that good people taught me this business plan and they were making a living as teachers and they were not making a living as artists and they were good people and they were good teachers, but they did not have to learn how to make a living. And And I think that artists just to have this, and it's going to happen for people. Like you said, Victoria, there are going to be people that find the right gallery and that gallery is really good at sales. And that gallery has people in the gallery who are good at writing articles and good at marketing and have a collector base. And 50% of that income is a nice living. But only 10% of artists that go to art schools ever make a living as artists. And the average artist in New York making a living is the average is making $25,000 a year. And this is not a living and it's not a living in New York city. And so very few people are, are in that probably 
three to 5% who went to art school who actually make a living probably from the gallery model. And I'm not dismissing the gallery model. It's a wonderful model. If I didn't move to Maui, I might not have even realized there was another model. I didn't have galleries here that were going to do that for me. So I had to do it myself. But I think that artists relying only on that model and thinking that that is the way that it's going to work for them is really what keeps them from not empowering themselves. I agree. I I mean, just circling back to how we started the conversation, it really does come down to taking full responsibility for your career, for every part of your career as an artist, making the work, presenting the work, talking about the work, sharing it, selling it. It's all of these things. And um, I'm curious to know if you, if there's like one, I mean, I know we talked about email marketing and I always say like email marketing is the key to sales (laughs) for sure. I mean, that's how you build investment in your work. That's how you get people interested. In addition to email marketing, what would you, if you had to say, like, what is the number one thing that artists should do, like an actionable step that an artist could do to sell their work? What would that be? Or is it sort of a culmination of many things? I think it's a combination of many things, but I do think it's Mm -hmm. like every week I go through my list and I write emails, personal emails to people who, especially this time of year, we're sitting here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know when this is going to come out. So we're sitting here, I don't know, two months before the end of the year. And people are thinking about their holiday gifts. And maybe you have people in your life. Maybe they were people who are even people, moms at your kid's soccer, who keep on telling you that they need a work of art for somewhere in their house and how much they like your work. I mean, this is the time of year to remake that connection. And I don't want to talk in sales terms too much, but because I think we're really talking about service here, but this is called like a warm lead in the art, in the sales world. And you have warm leads. You just don't know it. You might be saying, I don't have a large email list or I don't have a large this or that. You have people in your life that have expressed interest in your artwork at one time or the other in the last year. Just make a commitment to sitting down twice a week for 15 minutes and reviewing what it is that that person liked and write them a personal email and put in that artwork that you think that they would enjoy. And I'm not a big discount fan, but it is the holidays. So maybe offer like a 10% discount, but give them a deadline for that 10% discount. And if you feel like that's pushy, then just say, because it's the holidays and I need to make sure you get it in time for the holidays, I can only offer you this discount until, and then you put a date on it. And this is not a pushy email. This is a generous email to them, offering them a service of beautiful artwork for their home or for their family or or whoever expressed interest right now for them to enjoy before the end of the year. I love that. 
And I think it's a great strategy to write the individual emails as well as the newsletters because that does feel very personal. And I will tell you that strategy has worked on me. Like I've had artists write really warm emails to me before, you know, hey, Victoria, you you loved this painting or you loved this thing that I made. And, you know, I would love to offer it for you, like offer it to you for this much or, you know, with like a 10% or 15% um, discount, whatever it might be. But when it's an email like that, that's written to me personally, and it's really authentic. If I am in a position where I can, you know, collect that piece, I typically do. I'm not always in that position, but I will say that in the past, uh, and I've been able to, I've actually really appreciated the gesture and I appreciate the gesture either way, because even if I'm not able to make the sale then and there, they're in my mind now, you know, like I, I remember that email. It's a thoughtful gesture. And I think it's also important to remember that the way that we think something's going to be perceived is often not how it actually is perceived. Like when artists say, oh, I feel like this is going to be a pushy email, or I feel like if I post a lot on on Instagram that my work is for sale, it's annoying. And it's like, that's how you think it's going to be perceived. But actually the people on the other end who are receiving it are not feeling that way at all, they're probably finding like for the email that comes across as very thoughtful and genuine. Uh, and also when artists are posting on social media a lot, it's like, actually, that's really helpful because think about how many accounts we're all following and we miss so many posts um, that it is actually, it actually ends up being a really helpful thing and, and like a re- serves as a reminder. So I love, I, I just feel like your approach is so much about you know, you said being of service and kind of that's the, like the root, that's the core of your mindset and your approach. So it's less about like, how can I get someone to buy my work? And it's more like, let me find someone, I'm going to find the right people who resonate with my work and who want to buy my work. And what a beautiful thing, right? Because when you think about an artwork that you've purchased from someone in the past, I mean, or that you've you've even seen in a gallery or museum, it can be life-changing, you know? Like I think about a painting that I bought a few years ago. I look at that painting all the time and it has an ability to change my entire mood. I think that one of the things about having collectors is you get them to come back and talk to you and you understand how much they appreciate your artwork. And as an artist, I had no idea that it was going to be like that. I was painting for myself. So I had no idea how much the artwork would mean to other people. And at the beginning, I thought people were going to return the artwork. I mean, that's how I was at the beginning, right? Of course, they made the wrong decision. There were other people to choose from. They chose my artwork. They're going to, of course, return it as soon as they get it in the mail. Um, of that never happened. And the opposite happened. People come back to me all the time telling me how much my artwork means to them. And that is the real gold, right? That was the surprise gold that I didn't even understand before I went down this journey. So I think it's complete. You are so right, Victoria. The way other people perceive us is so different than the way we think we are being when we put ourselves out there. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's important to remember that because I think once we get past that, it's actually really freeing. Like it, you know, it's like, I think that's such an obstacle sometimes that we have to get past because I have felt that too. You know, I promote a lot of things for VAC and I have to remind myself, like, this isn't annoying. This could actually be a really helpful reminder for someone. Um, And just, you know, what you're saying about approaching everything that you're putting out there with like a a thoughtfulness and just a genuine sort of, you know, like you're doing your, whatever it is you're putting out there, it's from the heart. And people pick up on that. Like people will connect with that. People can tell, your audience can tell when something is from the heart, when it's intentional, when you're putting love into it. So as as corny as that sounds, I think it's very true. And Stephanie, as we start to wrap up this really, really amazing conversation, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but I know that you teach an incredible course, Artists Make Money. Can you tell us about how our wonderful listeners can learn more um, and, and register or enroll? Well, um, it's a great course. I really did um, make it from all my years of doing this. And uh, I know it took me forever to figure this out. And I don't want it to be forever for you guys. Um, and I separated it into four modules. The first module is revenue streams, because I think sometimes I am all for the galleries and I teach people how to get into galleries. But I think sometimes the galleries are not enough to keep steady revenue coming in, especially at the beginning while you're building up galleries. And so the first is just different ideas for revenue streams, some like the events, which I teach, but just some other ideas too. And then the second is all about operations, which is really just how not to spend your day doing the business of art. I mean, I think Victoria must have a very, very like (laughs) organized mind. I'm not that person. Um, Like I think that, I'm a little bit more uh, out there and I had to use a lot of apps and different things like Grammarly and stuff to kind of keep me moving along so that I could condense the business schedule into maybe an hour and a half to two hours every morning. And that's what I genuinely do is I usually in the morning do my business. I feel like I'm not a decider and I'm more of a person who likes to like what about this? What about that? What about this? And so mornings are great for me for decision-making. And so eight to 10, I mean, not strictly eight to 10, but in that time frame, I'm doing the business of my art. And then I have the rest of the day for my art. So I kind of teach people different things about how I mean your business bank account, your taxes, things like that, like really important things. And then the next is all about sales. And I really go deep into how to build a relationship and how to understand objection and rejection and move past it. And it's a system. It's a system of answering asking questions and listening for answers. And then the last part is all how to follow up, social media, newsletter, all those things. Um, If you are interested in the class, I highly recommend just going to the website, artistmakemoney.co, not .com yet, um, and just go start here. I have a free masterclass, and the free masterclass is about sales. 
And if you resonate with a free masterclass, then you're part of my tribe and please come and join me. And if you don't resonate with it, then I just hope you get something out of it for your 45 minutes to an hour. Um, But it's a great class about how to be more comfortable in understanding how to be of service and understand potential collectors and how they are relating to your network. Amazing. Amazing. Stephanie, thank you so much. This was absolutely incredible and just filled with so much wisdom. I'm really grateful that you joined us and I know it's going to make such an impact on all the wonderful artists who are listening. So I'll include all of these links in the show notes But thank you again for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Victoria. And I want to say I am so blown away by everything you do, how many artists that you go out and you champion, all the work that you do with your magazine. And I love going to the Instagram page for it and seeing all the new artwork every day. You post beautiful artwork by other people. And I am so in awe of how you do all you do with the opening of a new gallery. It's it's amazing how much you are an artist yourself and you champion other artists and you create community. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. much. That is just so kind and so lovely. And, you know, I think we love art. We love artists. That's, it doesn't even feel, I mean, it sounds so cliche to say it doesn't even feel like work because sometimes of course, like anything it does. But ultimately, when you're doing something that you love and that you're so passionate about and you see the difference it's making, and I'm sure you feel this way, teaching artists about, uh, you know, selling their work and making money, it is an incredible feeling and it is just so rewarding. So um, thank you for the kind words. Very excited about lots of good things to come for both of us and, you know, for everyone listening. But Thank you all again for tuning in. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in and supporting our platform. To learn more about New Visionary Magazine, head over to visionaryartcollective.com slash magazine. You can order individual copies on Amazon or subscribe annually to digital issues. We also have opportunities to get featured in the magazine, so be sure to join our newsletter and follow us on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or tag us on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.